Welcome again to Free Associations, the medical journal club podcast for anyone who's ever wanted to know more about how to digest the latest health study. I'm Matt Fox, a professor of epidemiology and global health at Boston University and an HIV researcher. And we are here once again in the Boston University Godly Studio. Before we get started, we wanted to take a second to remind you about the Population Health Exchange. That is Boston University School of Public Health's resource hub for lifelong learning. Find out more at www.populationhealthexchange.org, where you'll find this podcast as well as many other population health learning programs and tools. So today in our first segment, we are going to look at a new New England Journal of Medicine paper that looks at the effects of air pollution on mortality. In the second part of our podcast, we will talk about whether or not researchers and specifically researchers like us should be making policy recommendations in our papers. And then in our final segment, our amazing and amusing segment, we will talk about things that really impressed us or just made us giggle. Now, before we get into our first segment, let me introduce you to the group. I am joined here in the studio by Chris Gill. Chris, can you introduce yourself? Hi. Good uh, good day, Matt. Uh, Chris Gill. I'm an infectious disease doctor by training, and I am specifically not an environmental health scientist. You are specifically not that. There are many <laughs> things you are specifically not. But today, it's pertinent to note that. All right. And Dr. Don Thea. Yeah. Um, hi, Matt. My name's Don Thea. Um, like Chris, I'm an infectious disease specialist and not an environmental health specialist. Tell us what else you aren't. It would, take, right. it would take way too long. Yeah, it would. All right. So let's get into our, our first segment. So in segment one, we are going to talk about a new paper. This one's getting a ton of press, and uh, you may have heard about it because I heard about it on my drive home listening to NPR. And it looks at the role of air pollution on mortality. Um, it's got a... a Great deal of potential political implications given what's going on in the Trump administration around changing guidelines uh, around environmental uh, standards and regulations. And as I said, this one was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is perhaps uh, considered the top medical journal. I think the only thing that you could sort of get above New England Journal of Medicine is you get into the more general science journals, nature and science. So I think we're in the, the top tier of the journals. Someday we'll spend some time talking about whether or not being the top tier really means anything. Um, and this one is titled Air Pollution and Mortality in the Medicare Population, which I really like because it's so simple. I can actually understand it compared to the one we did last time about uh, measles. This one is is by um, a researcher named Kyun Chun. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Q-I-A-N-D. Uh, and what is fantastic is he is a doctoral student at Harvard. So this guy has not yet even completed his PhD and is publishing in the top medical journal in the country. In the world. In the world. I didn't want to be, you know, get our Europe, all of our European listeners may now be upset with you, Chris. And let me get, so let me, let me start off giving you some of the headlines that this one is, has received. So CBS News says air pollution levels considered safe can still shorten lifespans. The Huffington Post says air pollution is even deadlier than we thought. Study on Medicare fines. So that one's kind of scary. Time Magazine says air pollution is still killing people in the United States. And the New York Times says even, quote, safe pollution levels can be deadly. So this one clearly, these the newspaper findings are clearly coming down on the side of, of causation. Um, and I will say that, um, I'm just going to spoiler alert, say that I, I, I actually do uh, really like this study, but it did hit several of my, my pet peeves, including the fact that it starts off with perhaps my greatest pet peeve in the world. The abstract starts off with the phrase, studies have shown, which just, <laughs> I just, I just can't stand it. But anyway, I'm going to, um, we're going to start with uh, Chris this time. Chris, can you give us a, a sense for what they, what they did in the study and what it is they found? 
Okay, so um, I'm going to do my best here because um, this this uh, this article uh, was a stretch for me in terms of, of the methodology, um, having nothing whatsoever to do with infectious diseases, but rather with the measurements uh, of air pollution levels. And the way they, they approach this, um, uh, and I should say initially that this, this is a big data analysis because what they're massive. massive. So the biggest, the biggest, their, their <laughs> like sample the size country. was the entire population of Medicare uh, beneficiaries in the United States, uh, numbering uh, over 60 million people and followed in this case um, through the a, a creation of a retrospective database to create a, a retrospective cohort following these individuals over a, 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 an extended period of time from the time they became uh, eligible for uh, Medic uh, Medicare uh, through the completion of the analysis of the study. So they had something over 60 million people who they followed and several hundred million. Let, let that sink in for a million minute. patient years of observation. I have never and, seen anything on, on and, this scale before. And how many events? Because when we talk about uh, statistical power, uh, we often think of statistical power as if I've got a lot of numbers – got a lot of people in my study, I have a lot of power. Yes. But actually what drives your statistical power is the not events. the number of, of people, it's the number of outcomes. And right. in this case, the outcome is death. Right. And there were there were, there were a few of these. Because remember, the Medicare population is is by definition the older population who tend to be older and sicker than uh, the non-Medicare elderly population. And in this case, they're taught, they, they included 22,567,924 deaths. 20 Let that sink in. Two and a half million deaths yeah. were were included in this as the events. I mean, we have we have studies that 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 publish on, you know, 100 outcomes. Right. Or 22 million. Or 10, as in a recent excellent yeah, publication that, by Dr. Gill et al. Uh, last week we talked about a study that looked at 12. Right. <laughs> was, it, was it last week? Yeah, it was last week. Oh, okay. Anyway, so this is, so and the way they did it is, um, is by looking at uh, the zip codes in which these uh, Medi Medicare uh, in, uh, recipients lived. Um, and this is where it got really tricky uh, from a methodological standpoint, but but also really clever and in terms of how they solve this trickiness. So I did not know this, but the EPA has set up all these testing stations around the country, several thousand of them, to measure ozone levels. And ozone is a major uh, pollutant and considered to be a major risk factor for uh, death uh, due to respiratory or cardiovascular causes, and also fine particulate matter, which would they call PM 2.5, meaning the less than 2.5 micrometers? Micrograms. Micro, micro, micrometers. Tiny, 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 tiny. Microns. Microns, yeah. Tiny, 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 tiny. Smaller than a, a, the width of human hair. Right. So, sort of soot, fine soot. Uh, which, where does it come from? Um, well, they, 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 the main causes would be places like coal-fired plants or industry or automobiles. Automobiles, I think, is probably the one of yeah. the biggest ones Smog, given basically. The, the distribution. Yep. And, 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 and I think the reason that that's, that particular size is important is that it's, they're small enough to really get to the very distal, very end part of the, of the, the, respiratory, of the respiratory tract. Right, and cause inflammation there and maybe right. trigger asthma or exacerbations of emphysema or you know, various sequelae. That's stuff. Now, the, the, the tricky part is that they only measured these two at several thousand, which seems like a lot, but the country is huge. So they had to figure out how do we extrapolate beyond the ones we actually measured to figure out the ones we 
didn't. And they did this very clever analysis using all sorts of data inputs from satellites and, and agricultural surveys, looking at, at factors that predicted what the PM 2.5 and the ozone levels were at the measured stations. And then they looked at those same factors at all the other places where they were not directly measured and imputed those results to the same. Basically creating like, this is what we think the PM 2.5 and the ozone levels would be had we actually been able to measure it everywhere. Yep. And then they linked those to zip codes. And then they looked at the proportional uh, 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 changes in mortality in this population as a function to either directly measured or indirectly measured, estimated, I should say, uh, levels of these two major pollutants. And of course, the, the, the key finding was that the higher they were, the worse it was. But there was a there was a particular twist to to their analysis, which is that the EPA has previously defined certain thresholds as below which or above which are are problematic, but below which are considered safe. But you know we don't live in a dichotomous world. You know it's not like you know above twelve point five, oh oh, we have a problem, and below now it's twelve point four. You can forget about it. Everybody relax. That's biologically implausible. It's on some continuous relation. So they also looked at the effect of 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 ozone and PM. 2.5 levels below these so-called safe thresholds yep. and found that even there, there was a graded effect on mortality that was quite quite striking. In fact, it was even more striking than in the above 2.5, uh, which we can come back to later. So I think those are the main findings. It was so a very clever piece. So essentially, if we can... If we can keep the the level of these particulates and 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 level of the particulates and ozone down to even lower levels than we're currently trying to keep them at, we could potentially save, save many lives. many many lives. Okay. Many 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 lives. Because even one percent of sixty million people is a lot of people. One percent of sixty million people. Well, that is true. Although you know that seventy two point five percent of all statistics are made up on the spot. So. <laughs> <laughs> was, All right. I think the so, p value for that was less than 0. 0.001. Exactly. I think you're right. All right. So Don, give it, give it, give me your take on this one. Is it a good study? Yeah. No. I, I guess I guess we might actually be unanimous um, for this particular paper. I, I agree with Chris. I think this this was a very clever paper, and it was astonishingly large. Um, and I and I, I like the way they they got over uh, the issue of um, a limited number of actual concrete measurements, as Chris has just described. And I think that um, if you are to believe that construct, um, one of the things that makes this this paper really really interesting and and really um, applicable is the generalizability, mm, because sure. they were able to um, determine uh, determine these measurements, and I think something like eighty five percent of the zip codes in the country. So they were zip codes at altitude or at sea level. They were in urban areas. They were in rural areas. They were close to, you know, smog producing factories. And, and it, it's a very, very robust data set, I think, which, which is, is a real strength. Um, there are some limitations, and I yep. think that the authors um, outline these limitations, as any paper has limitations. And I think one of the, one of the, 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 the limitations is that they didn't account for movement. During the course of the 12 years that, uh, of observation from when people qualified for Medicare at 65 years of age um, and then the subsequent 12 years, there was, move, there was um, some movement um, between zip codes, right? Between zip codes. And Me meaning individuals who were in a zip code at a particular time point 
at the beginning may have moved to another zip may code. May have moved to another right. zip code and, and had a, 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 a change in their exposure. But when you have numbers like 60 million, those sorts of more minor changes are going to affect the outcome and affect the relationship, I, I think, to a very limited degree. So that, you know, the, the sheer numbers um, that, they, that were in, in, included in the data set, uh, in my mind, really um, just um, uh, invalidated that um, particular criticism. I think the other thing is, on the one hand, the, 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 the clever part about this particular paper was that it really limited it, its, um, itself to the population most at risk to death mm -hmm. and a population where death is counted very carefully. Um, what it, the question that it didn't answer is what are the long-term effects of exposure to air, air pollution? Because these are people who are entering the segment of their life where they have had a result of lots of wear and tear on the pulmonary system and the cardiac system. And so they are the most at risk of, of dying. But the, the question that wasn't answered is, to what extent does exposure to air pollution actually increase the wear and tear on the, on the respiratory system and, and provide additional disability or death over a longer period of time? Mm -hmm. um, one can't arrive at that conclusion based on, on this paper, but um, I think the, the results are absolutely important and absolutely meaningful nonetheless, mm -hmm. because this is the, the, the segment of the population that's really at greatest risk other than, you know, people that are severely asthmatic or have chronic obstructive lung disease or, or some other specific, specific pathogen. Yeah, this sort of gets into the question of do, do, do we... Do we fault studies for not answering the question we wish they had answered? Right, right. <laughs> right? So that's they, not fair. It's not fair, and yet we do it all the time, right? right? They, right. We, they could have done this or they could have done right. that. But I mean, this is a huge contribution to the literature, and we, we have learned a, a ton from this particular study. That said, if we go back to what we were talking about several weeks ago, the classification of, of randomized studies versus observational study, this is an observational study, right? right. We, didn't, we don't randomize people to live in particular places, and therefore we, we do have the potential for confounding we do have potential other problems. So, so given that we are all clearly uh, think that this was a well-designed, well-done study, and I will say this is, you can go on the uh, the Harvard University website, and there's an interview with the with the authors that really talks about the extensive uh, amount of time that this took and the effort it took to get. And you don't just get the Medicaid data and then just run your analysis. You, you, Medicare. The, the, so, excuse me, Medicare. Uh, uh, it's this is a massive undertaking in terms of I mean a, the amount of computing time that this took alone is 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 huge, but it is an observational study. So let's leave it that that we all agree that this is this is a good study. This produces produces some really useful information and is biologically plausible and is very biologically plausible, meaning that we, there's there's reason to believe the results based on what we know about the biology and and um, you know the the pathways by which this which this would affect mortality. Right. Chris, what are the what are the limitations? What should we be you know a little bit concerned about, and and what are the potential? Focus on the implications. Sure. Um, so in terms of limitations, I mean this is an observational study, so we should just you know point out that observational studies, by their nature, are limited in their ability to infer cause and effect. This one, I think the 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 direction of causality is much more persuasive that there is a causal relationship. Why? Um, well, I think because but there, because there's biological plausibility yep. uh, to start with. So we know that ozone is, um, is is a free radical and causes oxidative stress. And so there, it, may, it totally makes sense. And there are biological models showing that it is harmful as uh, there are for PM 2.5 particulates. So there's an abundant scientific literature showing that these two are, are, are clearly bad for you. Um, the second thing is that it's impossible that 
living in a zip code um, that, you know, by moving to a zip code, you would raise the two PM 2.5 levels. It can't occur in the opposite direction. So you can't have reverse causation. You can't have reverse causation because it's not that the subjects are creating pollution, I hope. Um, the, <laughs> right? <laughs> Probably <laughs> and, not at high enough right, levels. Right? So it, it, it can't work in the opposite direction. The the major um, uh, limitation is, is whether, whether there's bias and whether there's unmeasured confounding. Um, so I think... Some of the epidemiologists would say those are the same thing. Okay, well... That unmeasured confounding is a form of bias. Okay, fairly, fairly well. Um, uh, and I and the fact that the sample size was 460 million patient years of observation does not affect confounding. No, in fact, it, it potentially makes it, it worse. Because right. it eliminates random error, which we talked about last week as being problematic. Yeah, um, so it doesn't so, make the confounding worse so much as what it makes is our inferences that we draw from the study right. problematic because we don't account for the confounding right. in our p-values, our you know statistical significance. Exactly. Not so that we should be using statistical significance at all. More, more affected by the segment. confounding. Right. Um, and and this, I think this is their perhaps their biggest weakness. So, so what could, but, but, but make it more concrete, because what are the confounders you'd be concerned about here? Well, smoking would be like public enemy number one. And they were unable to control for uh, present smoking. They had a history of prior smoking in the Medicare database, but they didn't actually have current smoking or BMI, which would be another one, or um, I think um, wealth indices. Okay, so, so let's but break this down for me. In order to be a confounder, it's got to be associated with both the exposure and the outcome. Right. So we know smoking puts you at strongly increased risk for mortality. And we know How that would it be in- associated with exposure to particulate? Well, because I think, I think, you know, if you sort of imagine that, that there is a, you know, let's imagine there's a coal-fired plant that's belching, you know, PM 2.5s, and right around the corner there's a, a, a diesel depot where cars are belching, trucks are belching ozone out into the, you know, into the neighborhood. Those are going to be the less Chris desirable places, <laughs> less desirable places to live. And so there's going to be a socioeconomic uh, link between living there and being exposed to these. And but, that would, the lower which, socioeconomic status would be associated would, with higher rates of smoking. Would be higher rates of smoking yeah. and also higher rates of death due to all causes. Because yep. here they're not looking at the cause of death. It's an all-cause mortality. And obviously being poorer uh, and smoking are also uh, risk factors. Let, let, let me offer another concrete um, potential example of that, and that is that, uh, and this is something that I was unaware of, but apparently there is a fair amount of 2.5 particulate matter that's put into the air from the tires of our cars really? as they drive along on the highway, to the extent that in Los Angeles, they are now hmm. insisting that filters be put into air conditioners and houses that are in houses that are built adjacent to the highways, and that the wow. ceiling... Uh, the the ceiling the ceiling properties of the doors and the windows are at a higher level than 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 in, in other areas. And even with all of that, people are are saying that they they still, if you live close to the four hundred five or whatever one of those highways are in Los Angeles, that 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 there are there's grime and grit on their on their walls and on their on their furniture. And apparently, it is only within about a thousand feet of the highway. Um, so it's got. Two implications. One is that even if we were to solve the problem with the diesel emitting 2.5 particulates in the smokestacks, unless we switch to non-rubber tires, we're still going to have a problem. But people who are in lower socioeconomic um, categories probably 
would tend to live closer, closer to, to the, the highways highway. than, mm-hmm. than distant from the highway. So that's another potential confounding factor. How, how do you know all this? Did you actually prepare for the podcast? <laughs> no, actually, no. Th- there, was a, there, was a, there was an interesting article in the... Because L- I know you're not reading my emails. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Because I'm reading all this other good stuff. The good stuff. Uh, there was a really interesting article in the LA Times about that. And, and apparently uh, there's, there's, a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of political uh, upheaval about the requirement to add filters to your house. Okay, I can certainly see that. Um, any, other, any other concerns? Um, no, I think that was my my major concern. Uh, is that the, I think these are these are important uh, potential confounders that they, they could not control for directly, and they went through some um, uh, indirect process of trying to control for them by looking at a subset that had been sampled subsequently through a phone survey. Uh, and then when they looked at that and they didn't find any difference, they said, "Well, probably these were not very important confounders, and therefore we could ignore them for the majority of data where they where they were unable to confound." But I, I have to say, I wasn't totally sold on that. Yeah. I, I'm not totally sold either. And I won't, we, we don't have time to go into the details, but they, they, they did address this issue. So this is not something that we are bringing up that the authors didn't, didn't think through. And they did some clever analyses to try and think about how much potential confounding there is. So, so I've got two issues that I want to raise, and, and one gets to that particular issue. Um, and the first is you know, size of effect is important here. Mm, small. And, and that is something that I think that, that gets completely lost when it gets translated to the media. And media never says, you know, the, the headlines for the study are never your risk increases by X percent or whatever. It's just, you know, air pollution is going to kill you. And if you look at the size of the effects here, so if you, if you, if you, if I'm just reading directly from the paper, um, they say, and I don't know how to, let's just say increases of, um, particulate matter of, t- of a 10 unit increase and a 10 parts per billion increase in ozone were associated with increases in all cause mortality of 7.3% and 1.1% respectively. Let's ignore the 7.3%, just focus on the 1.1%. First of all, 1.1%, is that relative or absolute? Is that a, a am I, is that 1% more than it would have been otherwise 1% higher or is it you know, one percent difference in what it would have been, but either way, one percent is small. Now, it's—I don't mean to imply small on a population level. On a population level, if we could reduce mortality by one point one percent, that'd be huge. But on an individual level, when I think about reducing my risk, one point one percent is 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 not very much. So that's not. Again, that's not to 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 say it's not meaningful. It's very meaningful on a population level. We we would absolutely take an investment, a reasonable investment, to drop overall mortality by one point one. Percent, but where it becomes problematic is uh, when you have an observational study like this. If you have confounding of a very small effect, again, small in the relative terms here of one point one percent, it's not going to take that much confounding to explain away that one point one percent. And so, you know, I'm 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 pretty convinced, but I'm not a hundred percent convinced because they couldn't completely control for that confounding. Mm, that's a good point. But there is something working in their favor too, which is as so Chris so elegantly explained the the modeling approach that they used to determine how much exposure to particulate matter you had. They didn't have the answer, right? They don't they don't know exactly how much particulate you're being exposed to. They're estimating it, and when you do that on a population level with no information about who's dying or or any of those things, generally speaking, the misclassification is random. The way we get it wrong is random. And what that tends to do to your estimates is it makes them underestimates. 
And so the the one point one percent could actually be three percent, mm-hmm. depending on how much you know of this kind of misclassification there is. Um, so when you factor those two together, you know I can't say they necessarily balance each other out, but I can say there are things that I'm still concerned about. But overall, a, a really nicely designed study that I think uh, adds a ton to the literature, and I think has a lot of potential implications given the 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 decisions that are right now being considered around what to do with environmental standards. Or the Environmental Protection Agency itself. I, I, which I, as far, I checked this morning, still it there? still exists. All right. Well, that's good yep. for, for now. Uh, Matt, is there any way, is there any scenario you can you can imagine where where the direction of the bias would go the other way that would make this 1.1% increase in mortality per 10 unit increase in ozone level? Uh, is there any way that it could go the other way and negate the effect entirely? And that this is, that in fact, there is no relationship between ozone, which I don't believe, but I'm just curious. Absolutely. The confounding by, by, by smoking or socioeconomic status could, could certainly explain that away if, if there was a reasonable amount of confounding. Their, their sensitivity analyses that they did suggest that there's probably not a ton uh, but there, you know, when you're talking about 1.1%, it's reasonable. And this is this is the, the issue you brought up on one of the earlier podcasts that bigger is bigger is better, but bigger comes with its own problems. And one of the problems that comes about is we think we're being really precise. Well, no, we are being really precise, but we could be being really precise about the wrong answer. And so we could be more and more confident in the wrong answer if we put too much weight into the statistics. One thing that I'd like to I'd like to point out to the listener is to is to take a look at this article, which appeared as I think Matt said in the June 29th, 2017 issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. Because there's two there's two there's an illustration there's a figure in this paper which has two representations of the United States where they in essence show the distribution of level of um, ozone and the particulate matter, and it's a pretty shocking map when you look at it. Where is it all? Because because depending on on, on which what you're looking at, um, there's a high concentration in, in the Los Angeles area and in the environs around um, Los Angeles. But there's also a high concentration in the east. I, I think there's a higher concentration of ozone. Ozone, o- ozone is in the is in the east. No 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 west. Is in, in the west. west, right? Is in is in Los Angeles, and the particulate matter is in the east, as you would expect, because of the industrial uh, you know the industrial Midwest. But why why the, why is the ozone in a different area? That, that 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 has a different uh, genesis as we just recently learned from right. Wikipedia. Right. That there there are there are there are because two we pathways. We're not environmental specialists. It's true. Wikipedia very useful. Thank you very much. My, just take a look. My Wikipedia right. page says that I invented the question mark. Oh, did you? Well, no, jolly that's good. Austin Powers. Oh shoot. Uh, well, I was going to say, ozone is, is is naturally generated at high altitudes by the interaction between oxygen and uh, ultraviolet light, which is less filtered at higher altitudes. So okay. when you see this big hot spot around the mountain areas, it's because of altitude. So that's that's one origin of, of ozone, is just living in Colorado Rocky Mountain highs. Yep. Um, but the second major one Sing is... for us, Chris. Is, uh, <laughs> you don't oh, want no. me to. No. You Please. don't want me I've to. I've heard no, no. It's not that good. Uh, is... is is smog, um, which is the interaction of ultraviolet light on the emissions from um, from the combustion of, of petrochemicals. So uh, smog and uh, altitude are the keys. And Los Angeles seems to be the epicenter of the highest uh, ozone concentrations in the country. Wow. And what I, what I actually wanted to bring this back to is that those those two risk ratios that, or risk rates that you had mentioned, Matt, 7% and 1.1%, were rates for each individual pollutant. But as I recall, isn't there a higher rate 
Um, when you take into consideration the, the, the when bo- both of the pollutants are, in, in fact, elevated. Is there a positive interaction, you mean? I think so. I am going to punt on that one because I do not remember. I, I thought it was 15% when... Um, 15% increase? And so if, what you're saying is being exposed to both is, is worse than being exposed to one. If your levels are high to, to one, of uh, both one. is worse. Sure. The, the other thing which is, th- which is which is a real wake up call for people living in the Los Angeles area basins because that's the part of the country where the, where uh, high levels of both really really exist. So one one thing that really sh- sort of struck me and 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 made me stop and think um, was this uh, low exposure analysis. Um, and so this has very practical pol- policy implications. I think we're going to talk pol- about policy and okay. science in a moment. But the, this issue of are there safe levels of ozone or safe levels of PM 2.5? Um, and so what they, they did is they, they did their analysis separately for the, the dose-response relationship between mortality and um, PM or ozone uh, below the, the EPA's, uh, quote, safe levels of 12.5 and 50 parts per billion, respectively. And they found that the dose-response relationship was actually more dire in the low uh, intensity and seemed to level off somewhat in the higher levels. And and I initially thought, gosh, that's that feels very counterintuitive. Why would that be worse? Um, but it, it it's possible because in, in biology, most, uh, at least with drugs uh, and vaccines and um, receptor ligand interactions in biology, uh, there is a, a sigmoid dose response curve where it's flat at the beginning and then there's a saturation effect. And there's a saturation effect. So I'm wondering yeah. if uh, the above the 12 and a half is that we're actually starting to look at the flattening off of the curve in the dose response relationship between PM and ozone. And then actually the real win in terms of reduction in mortality is in, is in the lower. So we could, if, if, if that's true, if that's what we're seeing, then the argument for pushing the standards down even further actually becomes much stronger in my view. Yep. Uh, Do you think alternatively it could be a power issue that the, that the, the 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 number of samples obtained from areas of really high levels is relatively limited in comparison to the population living in areas where there aren't extremely high levels, and that's why you're seeing less of an effect? Well, it's, I suppose it's possible, but I'm just looking at their confidence intervals, and they don't really seem to cone out um, in the lower version. So I don't think that's the explanation. Yeah, I mean they had they had with massive amounts of data, you could do fine analysis, and and I, I don't want to go into the details, but they did do some stratifications of their data set by uh, by race and and I think possibly ethnicity and sex, um, showing that the effects were different for different groups. Um, but certainly they had the ability to 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 reasonable amount of power to be able to stratify by by exposure levels as well and 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 look at these things. Uh, let's 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 leave it there and just say that we we are all in agreement that this one is is a really nice study that's that's um, demonstrated how you can use uh, observational data and clever thinking to really get at what's going on around environmental exposures or anything else really if you've got the right data and the right way of looking at it. So I want to move on uh, and into our, our segment two. In our first segment, we, we talked about this environmental exposure paper. And uh, as I said to you, I, I went online and listened to the podcast uh, from the Harvard School of Public Health in which the author and the senior author uh, gave their take on, on this paper. And, and they made some statements that, that particularly the senior author uh, I believe it was a senior author anyway, made the, made the statement that, you know, if we were to, what this, this, this data basically shows is that if we were to reduce our standards and bring the uh, exposure to particulates down, we could therefore uh, save a lot of lives. And they went into actual specifics around number of lives saved, which I actually think is a, a, a probably a more cogent way of convincing people to do something. But, you know, this is the, this is 
one study. It's the biggest study, and it follows up on a lot of other studies, but it's not a meta-analysis in which we've combined the results of lots of studies. And the question is, when you get to the end of, end of studies like this, they, they often, and I'm not accusing this paper of doing this, but studies often end with something along the lines of, you know, the policy implications of this study are X, or therefore, because of the results of the study, we should do this. So this study could have ended with a statement that said, because of this, we should lower particulate uh, uh, thresholds. And my question to you is, should we as researchers be doing that? Is it our job to, at the end of, of our particular study, make a statement that says what people should be doing based on the results of our study? Don, what's, what's, your, what's your take on that? Um, and, and, and I guess what you could say, if not, what are, why not? What are the dangers? Yeah, you know, I think, I think I am and probably we are a little biased because the kind of work that we do is in the health sector. And the kind of work that we do is what we call applied research as opposed to basic or discovery research, where we look for um, relationships that purposefully can be translated into an action of some sort so that the, uh, the problem that we identified and that we researched um, is, is, is uh, we, we come up with an answer that, can, that is actionable. Um, and, and so I think that that's kind of the nature of the, the scientific inquiry that, that we're involved in. So I think we're a little bit biased. Um, my answer would be, yes, I think it's perfectly fair. I think it's, you know, it's, it's rendering an opinion. Um, it is put out as an opinion. It should be um, seen as an opinion. Um, but I think it's a learned opinion. And I think it's a learned opinion because we are scientists and what we try to be as much as possible is objective. And because we work in uh, areas um, that um, are not isolated, we tend to be fairly well-versed in questions that are related to the question that we're reporting on. And therefore, we, we have a, a, a pretty good sense of the lay of the land. Not, not perfect, but we have a pretty good sense of the lay of the land. So I think it's perfectly reasonable for us to be able to, 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 to render an opinion because we know what the landscape is. So, so are you making a distinction between what, what, we're, what we're doing in sort of applied research uh, compared to bench research, you know, st study that's done in a lab where, you know, finding that some, some, okay, I don't know the first thing about bench science, but, but, but some discovery that you might make in, in, in the way that some enzyme reacts, you know, or, or affects cellular life, that, that may never translate into anything practical that we could do. And therefore you wouldn't be able to make a policy statement. We should therefore start taking this and, and using it in this particular way. Whereas when we're doing applied stuff like, you know, take the, the ozone example, there is a, a very natural intervention that flows from it. And therefore, we can we can make recommendations based on that, or am I misunderstanding you? No, no, no. You're you're pretty much getting it right. You know, I I think some of the some of the the really really important discovery bench research that that is done um, may not lead to something that is practically useful, or it may lead to something that is deeply useful and transformative. It's there are so many steps between discovery of the conformation of the epitope on the surface of a particular cell or molecule and what it's going to end up being that it's that it's it's hard to predict and therefore you're at a loss for being able to actually make those prognostications or those those policy recommendations. Chris, 
Where do you fall on this? I, 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 I completely agree with Don. I mean, I think we we're, uh, Wait, Don what? is startled here. No, I, I'm I, startled. I kept, uh, we, it, it, but it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's like he says, it's a feature of the kind of work that we, we engage in, uh, here uh, at the school of public health, uh, where I think we tend to seek out, uh, research questions, which have a policy implication to them. That's why we're asking the question. So it would be odd somehow if we went through the analysis of these data and then ignored the elephant in the room. You know, like you, you, you do an investigate, you know, an investigation into breastfeeding and HIV transmission, um, like Don did with the Zeb study. And at the end, you have to actually say, you know, the reason why we did this is because we'd like to know should mothers be abruptly weaning their babies or not. It's a very relevant question, and if 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 it saves lives, maybe we should be putting that into the guidelines. I think that's that's fair. Okay, but maybe we should be putting it into the guidelines is different from saying we should put this into the guidelines. Right. I mean, those are those are one is a policy statement. We should do this. Yeah. The other is a we should think about this, which is, of course, we should think about everything. I'm asking you specifically, should we be making statements of our belief? Should we should we be assertive? Should we be should we saying we believe that this is a change that needs to be made or an investment that needs to be made or a policy that needs to be changed based on the results of our research? I obviously depends. Um, but there are situations where I guess the answer would be yes. I would say so. Can you give me an example? Not off the top of your head. Um, none that are not totally self-serving, you mean? Oh, go for self-serving. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I kind of felt pretty strongly that um, teaching Zambian traditional birth attendants to do neonatal resuscitation, uh, you know, we showed in our study that it dropped mortality by almost half. Uh, and this was a cheap date in terms of the cost effectiveness. And I think I felt pretty strongly that that should lead to a policy change at, at WHO in Geneva. They should say TBAs should be trained to resuscitate babies because it saves lives. I, I felt and, strongly and, about that. And, and, and it was not, either by the Zambian it was government not. or the World Health Organization. <laughs> well, we've, they, we've had lots of experiences where those things have happened. But uh, So okay. that would be one where I would say, yes, I felt strongly that this should be done. <laughs> okay, so I, I, I am sure that when we talked about this conversation, I don't know, 10 minutes ago. We, uh, we all had, you all had different opinions on this that I, than what I thought you were going to express. But the problem is that most so, of the time it's so, it's, it, what, I, what comes out of my, my, my research paper is much more wishy-washy. And I wish it weren't, but it is. Wishy-washy meaning what you actually say is, if this pans out, right. maybe you should think about it. Exactly, because I'm not so sure that I'm but right. But that's where I'm going with this. I, you know, it's, if it pans out is one thing. I, I, I'm, 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 I'm against the idea of making policy statements, which before anyone goes off, you can go back and find some cases and you you publications of mine where we have <laughs> either as a group of authors have decided that something goes in there or I was pre-enlightenment phase. But uh, I'm, 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 I'm against this idea of making policy statements for two reasons. And hopefully I can remember both of them. So I'll say the one that I remember and while I'm talking, hopefully I remember the other. The first is, do we really know we're right? Do we, I mean, I, so we do this study, I mean, and we come to the end of it. I'm not sure we necessarily want to make a, a policy statement based on the results of one and only one study. Yeah, we can think about studies that have been done previously that have, have also supported what we did. But you can almost always find studies, particularly if you work in the observational field, that contradict what we found. And so I'm not sure you'd want to say based on, based on the results of my study – that we should do this because then the other person who found, you know, the opposite of what you found can make the policy statement saying, well, we shouldn't consider this. No, but I think we have a responsibility as scientists that, that, that 
we make those recommendations only when we really believe that the preponderance of evidence of which our study may be one portion um, leads us to, to that conclusion. The other thing I'd say, Matt, is that um, we're, we may not be sure, but are the policymakers any more sure than we are? So that's the second, well, are they more sure than we are? I don't know. I don't know the answer to whether or not they are sure. I know that I can come up with lots of examples of where we thought we were right and the preponderance of evidence went in the same direction and we were wrong. Uh, hormonal contraception and, and and well, that's science. You know, science is an iterative process, and things that were wrong previously can be right now, and vice versa. And policy has to be made based wait, wait, on wait, the, wait, wait. the current <laughs> they, they of data. <laughs> they, they were not wrong and became right. They were just wrong, and we got it wrong. Yes, and I think that that's that's the problem. Was in that case is that we got it wrong. I, I'm not I'm not trying to suggest that we don't have some kind of obligation to think about why it is we're doing what we're doing. I'm just saying that that once we if so the the purist would the pure scientific approach would say we have an obligation to uh, conduct science that we have an obligation to keep an open mind that anything we publish could be wrong and therefore if I publish it and I say and not only am I committing to the fact that it's right by telling you this is what you should do with it then I, I, I'm not going to be open to the idea that I may in fact be wrong and that makes it harder to do the next study that confirms it or to go down any road, me personally, in which I can can contradict what I've just said because I've I've laid out a firm position on the table that I believe this to be to be right. So I think it's problematic from a scientific standpoint. I also think it's problematic because I'm not trained in how to do policy analysis. I don't have that, you know, policy isn't just about does it save lives or does it alleviate suffering? Policy is about is it acceptable? Is it feasible? Does it work the same in all populations? Is it cost effective? Is it ethical? And so on and so forth. And those are all things that I am not trained in how to, how to make a, a good calculation on. And therefore, I just think we ought to, we ought to stay out of it. But, but, but as I mentioned to you guys earlier, I, I took this uh, particular opinion at a, at a public health association conference in a panel uh, that I was on last year. And Boy, that room did not like me for it. So I'm not surprised that I'm alone in this. But go ahead, hammer me on it. No, no, no. You're just being. You're just endorsing the fact that we need to be humble and careful. I, I, I am, and I think we need to stay within the bounds of what we know how to do. Right, and and you know, I think as 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 ho- hopefully as scientists, we are trained to be co- to be skeptical, and yep. and to be open and to let the evidence speak. And when the evidence when we believe that the preponderance of evidence says something that we believe to be truthful, I think it's it's almost our responsibility to put it out there. Now, the policymakers are going to ask other experts that you know have uh, will contribute information to their ability to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Can I give the last word? You can to um, Timothy Caulfield. I have a quote here. Oh boy, go I would for like it. To, um, I'd like to read. Um, according to Timothy Caulfield, who wrote a book called, Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything? Well, I mean, I think we know the answer to that one. Do we need? And a health law professor at the University of Alberta, placental consumption is one of many health phenomenon lacking scientific evidence that has been popularized by celebrities. And his quote is- Did she do that? Yeah. She advocated, I (laughs) think. Yeah, she advocated eating the placenta. And we now know that that, that's quite a dangerous It's really bad. Uh, no, it's uh, it's so, so his so his quote so his quote was, "What you really want to wait for is a body of evidence." There you go. Look for trusted sources of information that aggregate the science. 
That's what you want. You don't want sources that hype a single study. You don't want to take advice from a celebrity. And you don't want to use anecdotes and narratives as evidence. I thought that... Uh... I thought that anecdote was just the singular version of data. Is that not true? <laughs> no? No? Okay. Isn't that qualitative data? I, uh, I'm not going to go there. Not taking that bait. Um, I think you could read that quote to either support your opinion or mine, depending <laughs> on how you, 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 you go about it. But I, I, think it's a, I think it's a good way to wrap it all up. All right. Well, let's then move on to our third segment, uh, our amazing and amusing segment, where we want to highlight some of the things that that, that make us uh, happy to come to work each day. Um, so this is our, our segment in which we look at the weird and wacky things that happen or the things that just amuse us or the things that inspire us. Um, so each one of us has come up with something. Chris, what do you got for us? Sure. I, I found this um, this paper, and I'm going to use the word that scientists often throw around to say they really please, liked it. Please make it not moist. No. Don't say moist. <laughs> elegant. I thought this was an elegant study. Um, elegant. Elegant. And this was a paper uh, published by uh, the, the, the first author was Ho, H-O, uh, senior author Xia, X-I-A, and middle author Chong uh, at the, uh, uh, in Singapore. Um, uh, taking advantage of a nas- uh, natural experiment about the effect of taxi color on automobile accidents with those taxis. Um, and the title of the paper... Taxi color? Published in the, in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Scientists of Science. So this was this is a very high That's tier a top journal. Tier journal. It's a top tier journal. Published this just recently, and the title is called "Yellow Taxis Have Fewer Accidents Than Blue Taxis Because Yellow Is More Visible Than Blue." And it took advantage of a natural experiment oh. where two companies in Singapore, one which had a fleet of yellow taxis, merged, and so now you had a combined fleet oh. of a hundred of yellow and blue taxis that were all being driven by the same drivers on a rotating basis, and they had detailed accident statistics on all. All these taxis and they did a whole series of really excellent controlled analyses and they showed that the, that driving a yellow taxi reduced your risk of being rear-ended by about nine percent and it totally Back. makes sense and the effect became more profound when they these were nighttime accidents and you're relying on ambient street lamps and they controlled for cool. driver experience and age and prior accident history and all of these things none of them mattered except for the color of the taxi and the most profound effect which also was sort of I, I'm not going to use the word biologically plausible, but is was plausible, was that the effect was most profound on, on reducing the risk of rear-end collisions. Um, if you were the taxi that was yellow, you are much less likely to be rear-ended than if you were a blue taxi, because cool. you're more visible to the car that crashes into you from behind, whereas front-end collisions, where it's the driver of the yellow taxi, it shouldn't make any difference. The effect was trivial. I thought really? this was a great study. Oh. I think so, we ought to, we ought to expand it. We, totally we ought to cool. use Uber it's and expand totally it to cool. all colors. Oh, and what I really oh, wanted to know was like Uber, Uber doesn't randomize the color of the. You have your driver problems. Yeah. It's true. Oh. And, and, and it made me wonder, what, like, what about uh, variations on this where you had, like, red taxis and green taxis and, like, whether with, like, colorblind men, colorblind, yeah. colorblind men, does that matter? Are red and green cars more likely to, to like, get in accidents than yellow and, and blue cars? I mean, it's, there's so many questions I here. I like it. I like so it I thought a lot. this terrific study. I highly recommend it. PNAS 2017. All right. Dom, what do you got for us? So I have a, um, a paper that was um, published in Vision Research um, by Higashiyama and Adachi from the Department of Psychology in Osaka, Japan. And um, I, I got to say, I read this paper several times, and I, I can't understand why they did the paper or what was the underlying 
That's always a sign of a good paper. That they were trying to answer. <laughs> but the, the, the title of the paper is Perceived Size and Perceived Distance of Targets Viewed from Between the Legs. What? So what they did is they, 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 they took 15 volunteers and they arranged... Why ob- do we need to know this? Uh, that's what I said. I, I don't really understand why this study was done. But they took 15 volunteers and they arranged objects at a specific distance from where they were standing. And they asked them to estimate the size of the object as well as the distance of the object from where they were standing. And they first had the people bend over and mm-hmm. observe these objects through their legs. Of course. And then they did it standing up. And they found that when you observed these objects between your legs, your, 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 the precision of your estimate was much worse. So you were much worse at estimating the distance and size of an object when you were looking from between your legs. And they wondered whether this had some sort of, that there was a positional effect. So what they did was that they had the same individuals lie down on the ground and wear those prism glasses where things get inverted. Right. And when they were lying down and they used those prism glasses and everything was turned upside down, they were as accurate as if they were standing straight and estimating the size what? and the distance of these objects. No. However, when they bent over and looked at the distance um, of these objects between their legs, it, it was, they were far more inaccurate. Huh. So, so wait a minute. If you're looking through your passenger side mirror where it says objects in the mirror <laughs> may be closer than they appear, if you were to do that standing on the seat with your legs between your, your head between your legs you looking at the, the mirror. You would yellow cap in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly if you're in the driver's seat. Right, right. You cannot want to look at that mirror from between your legs when you're in the driver's seat. Okay, this is this is two programs in a row where yours kind of come together. That's great. Thankfully, I'm not itchy this time. Okay, well, mine's a quick one, but it has nothing to do with crashing into anything, as far as I know, or depth so, perception, or depth perception at all. So I am. Um, so I got this one from a uh, a, a website that looks at uh, that that not looks at that uh, aggregates uh, Easter eggs in 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 uh, in journal articles. You know what I mean by Easter eggs? I don't mean actual Easter eggs. No, I don't. Like little things that are hidden that you know little little nuggets of goodness that you find hidden away in scientific papers. In scientific papers is what they're aggregating for. And so what they had was um, I found this one that just. Made me laugh. I cannot ver- verify the the authenticity of this actually being published in a paper because they only give the snippet of it, so I don't actually know where it comes from. But you know, in the in the end of a, of your manuscript, you can give uh, uh, you know uh, acknowledgments to people, or you can uh, or they ask you to describe the uh, the contributions that each author makes and things like that. Different journals have different standards. So in this one, the the authors uh, were very specific, and I'm always um, amazed that I don't have the uh, the guts to put something like this in one of my uh, one of my publications. So this one has in the the statement on authorship the following statement: Order of authorship was determined by degree of Star Wars fandom, and any disagreements were resolved. <laughs> any disagreements were resolved implicitly through passive aggressive editing of the manuscript, leaving the illusion of unchallenged solidarity. <laughs> <laughs> that is 
a classic. And I just oh, wish I had the guts to write something like that and publish it anyway. And it got past the journal, the journal editors. And they were fine with it, clearly. Oh, I love I it. I think journal editors have more of a sense of humor when it comes to this stuff than we think. Uh, it's beautiful. There's hope uh, yet. What's that? There's hope yet. Yep, there is hope yet. All right, so that brings us to the end of the program. So we've got some great news. We have just now hit about 1,000 downloads, which is fantastic. Uh, and we're now at the point where we're interested in getting some feedback from our audience as to uh, where we're finding you all and how we are, could potentially reach some more people with this podcast. We've gotten great feedback so far from our families, but uh, turns out they may not uh, be giving us the most honest feedback. So we have set up a survey that you can find on our webpage, which is pophealthex.org slash FA, or you can just go to the pophealthex.org website and find our page there. Um, so we want to thank Leslie Talalian, who is the Director of Lifelong Learning at Boston University School of Public Health for supporting this podcast, and for Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed it, and we'll download our next episode. Music